All right, if you could grab uh, Numbers chapter 13. Myrtle's going to come and read that for us. Numbers chapter 13. Uh, she's, Myrtle's going to pick it up from verse 25. And uh, what's happened in, uh, hopefully you remember last week as we looked at 10 to 12, the Israelites moved out from Mount Sinai and are, are moving to the land. Uh, in chapter 13, Moses gets uh, 12 of the leaders of the nation of Israel to go into the promised land and to check it out and to see how good it is and for them to sort of explore it and then come back and report to the Israelites. Myrtle is going to pick it up in uh, verse 25 uh, and uh, w- the, the, uh, the people that went out to explore it are just coming back to report back on it. Thanks, Myrtle. Numbers 13, starting at verse 25. Now, what's God going to do? Don't read ahead. What will God do? The Old Testament Israel, nation of Israel has just spurned the plans, the promises and the commands of God and given everything that's gone on before this moment, what will God do? This is a real crossroads because this is the nation that God has promised to bring into the land. Promises that started way back with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would have this land. Well, here are Abraham's descendants. This is the moment for them to be given the land, but they don't want it. And as they're brought to the very edge of the land, some of them have even walked into it. As they teeter on the cusp of God's promises, they throw it all back in his face. They desperately want to go back to Egypt and they will kill anyone who says differently. So what does God do? Does he force them to go into the land? After all, this is the nation that God promised that would inherit the land. This is the very people he's bent over backwards to rescue in order to give them the land. He's got to bring them into the land, doesn't he? But one, these people don't want to go in. And two, these people are wickedly rebellious and unbelieving and God can't let this go unchecked. Sin must be punished. He can't take this people into the land, can he? So what does he do? He just can't pretend that their sin didn't happen or doesn't matter. Sin must be punished. And so God's holiness is on the line. But what about his promises that they would get to the land? He said these people would have the land. And so God's faithfulness is on the line. What does God do? Can he be holy and faithful at the same time? Let's keep reading verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I'll make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. God's condemning response is to wipe the nation out to strike them down and destroy them and then start again with Moses. And in this way, God will maintain his holiness. He wouldn't have let the sin go unchecked. And he'll also keep his promises. They'll just be delayed. He'll make Moses into a nation and then take his descendants into the land. And so it seems that the puzzle's been solved. But there's more pieces to this puzzle than just God's holiness and his faithfulness. There's also God's reputation, his honour. The problem gets even trickier. We see this as Moses appeals to God's reputation and pleads to God to relent from the slaughter 
and instead to forgive the people because if God does wipe them all out in one go, then the nations are going to hear about it and they'll think that God was too weak to bring his people into the land. They'll laugh at God, mocking his power. Verse 13, verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on earth, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Moses is pleading for forgiveness but not on the basis that the people will do better next time. It's not because Moses is convinced that they've learnt their lesson now. Moses is asking for the survival of the people because if God does slaughter them, well then Egypt will hear of it and they'll laugh at him. They'll think that God was too weak to give them the land. The nations will think that God's a wimp, unable to do what he says. And so for the sake of your reputation, O God, for the sake of your name and according to your word, Please forgive. And again, we're meant to be asking, what will God do? How can he punish this abominable sin and keep his promises and maintain his honour? How can he be holy and faithful and keep his reputation as the all-powerful forgiving Lord? What will he do? What can he do? Before we look at God's uh, response and his solution to his problem, it's worth thinking about Moses' plea for a bit. Because his appeal for the sake of God's reputation, that's a theme that runs right through the Bible. Just one example is in Matthew, uh, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And top of the list is that God's name would be hallowed. In other words, that God's name would be declared and shown and seen to be holy that his reputation would be spread abroad, that above all else God's name would be honoured. That's what Jesus taught. It's what drove Moses. Is it what drives us? There are moments in life when uh, we fight for the honour of someone else's name. Uh, At school, uh, if someone's slagging off against one of your friends, you might want to stick up for them. You, You don't want people saying bad things about your friends. For me... Uh, It's mostly when the kids aren't treating Catherine very well and I step in to make sure Catherine gets the uh, respect she deserves. For a select few, there's enforced honour, isn't there? Uh, For example, if you're going to go and meet the Queen, uh, you'll first be educated in how to greet her, how to talk to her. You'll be told what you can do, what you can't do, who speaks first, who speaks last, when to bow or curtsy, because the Queen is due her honour. And so there are people whose job it is to make sure she gets it. We can give people honour. We can fight for the honour of other people. What about our concern for God's honour? Above all else, 
is our most important concern that God's name be honoured. It's what drove Moses' prayer. It's how Jesus taught people to pray. Is it what drives our prayers? As we pray for our children, be they young or adult, as we pray for our children, are we asking that they be healthy, wealthy and wise? Or are we asking that their lives would bring honour to the name of the Lord? As we pray for each other here in our church family, are we asking that we live in a way that will make everybody else stand up and think, how great is the God that they serve? Or do we stop at asking God for comfort and safety and health? It's not just how we pray. We're to be concerned for God's honour all the time. And so someone might be bad-mouthing Jesus in your presence. Uh, could be a morning tea at work. could be in the playground uh, with a schoolmate. It could be your relative who thinks that all this God stuff is just for kids. When someone's bad-mouthing Jesus, we shouldn't think it's a free country and everyone's entitled to their opinion. We should want them to be silenced. And the best way for them to be silenced is that they repent and put their trust in Jesus and start praising God instead of cursing him. But in the meantime... We should take a stand and call a spade a spade. Let's fly the flag. Let's not put up with God's honour being bandied around as if it's a joke. That's what Moses was trying to avoid in Numbers chapter 14. Remember his plea? For the sake of your name, O God, don't wipe these people out and have Egypt laugh at you. That's Moses' plea. So let's have a look at God's answer. How will God solve his problem? As he responds to the rebellion of his people, how will he maintain his holiness and his faithfulness uh, to his promises and his reputation? How can he maintain all three? Verse 20. Verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory in the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went into and his descendants will inherit God forgives. And yet those who treated him with contempt will not see the land. It seems that the forgiveness that we're seeing here is that God will not wipe them out as he said. Uh, He's forgiven them and so he's relented from destroying them but their sins will not go unpunished. This generation will not see the land. They will not go in. Only Caleb and later we learn Joshua as well. Only these two out of that entire generation only Joshua and Caleb will go into the land. And the punishment that God brings down on Old Testament Israel fits the crime. What they asked for is what God will give them. In verse 2, Israel wished, uh, wishes that, he, that they died in Egypt or in the desert. And in verse 29, God declares that in the desert their bodies will fall. In verse 3, they say they don't want to go into the land. In verse 30, God says... They won't enter the land. In verse 3, Israel say that they want to go back to Egypt. In verse 25, God says they will head back to Egypt. Again in verse 3, Israel feared that their children will suffer. And in verse 33, God says their children will suffer. 
as they wander around the desert waiting for their parents to die. Because after this generation has died, our God will then bring their children into the land he promised. Have a look at verse 31. Verse 31. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected, but you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. And what we see here is that God has preserved his holiness. He hasn't let sin go unchecked. He's preserved his faithfulness. Their children will inherit the promised land. He'll keep his promises. And God has preserved his reputation. Israel's not wiped out, and so the nations don't have reason to mock him. This is pure genius that we're looking at here. Amongst other things, an important thing we're seeing about God here is his wisdom. That in the face of of abhorrent sin, God is remaining true to himself and to his word. He's treating rebellious people with faithfulness and justice. And God's showing the world his greatness. The very fact that the Old Testament nation of Israel remained alive at this point is testimony to God's wisdom. I don't know about you, but sometimes things in life, they're hard to work out, aren't they? They're tricky. You're not sure what the right thing to do is, and sometimes you have to compromise. The whole issue of reconciliation and the the apology, the sorry, and compensation. The Prime Minister's apology during the week, it was a stirring occasion, wasn't it? There's a sense of us as a nation moving in the right direction, but what we what we do next? Well, that's a bit tricky, isn't it? What are we to do next and how far are we to go? So, for example, should the government uh, provide compensation? If yes, how much and who to? Or, in what sense does paying money make up for the fact that it was lives that were stolen? Uh, stolen? Should, the, should the next step simply be to, from here on end, treat the Aboriginals as fairly as we possibly can? What should we do next? Well, the solution's a tricky one, and I've only canvassed a few of the issues. Some things are hard to work out, aren't they? Well, it's nothing compared to satisfying God's holiness, his faithfulness, and his reputation in the face of sin. That is hard. But here in Numbers 14, what we're looking at is the sheer brilliance and genius of God. That Israel remained alive in Numbers 14 is testimony to the wisdom of God. To look upon Israel at this point in their history, is to look upon the wisdom of God. Just as it is to look upon the church today. Today, if you want to see the wisdom of God, look at the church. You can look at the reference later, but in Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that the church is the place where God's wisdom can be seen. And why is that? Well, it's just like what we've been seeing in Numbers 14. Just like God promised to give Old Testament Israel the land, he's promised uh, to bring people from all nations into his new creation. Just like God couldn't tolerate Israel's sins, they needed to be judged, we too are sinners worthy of judgment for rebelling against God. Just like God's honour and reputation was at stake, same too today. His honour is still, his name is still to be honoured. And so how can God judge our sin and yet bring us into the new creation and so keep the honour of his name? through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf, our sins have been dealt with justly. And so God's holiness 
is maintained. Through Christ, therefore, we can be truly the people of God. And so God's faithfulness is maintained. He keeps his promises. And in the death of Christ, God's name is held aloft. As in the one act, he defeats sin and death and the devil. He secures the eternal salvation of his people. He fulfills all of his promises. And so as people look on the church today, the people of God through the death of Jesus, what they're looking at is the genius of God, the wisdom of God, God's people, sinners, yet forgiven, rebels, yet restored, that we actually exist, sinners like us, that we actually exist as God's people, is testimony to the wisdom of God. And if we truly believe this, well, then the last thing we'd ever think of doing is turn our backs on God. As we've read of the tragedy of Old Testament Israel in Numbers 14, we're meant to look at their examples of rebellion and determine not to follow in their footsteps. We're meant to take in the foul stench of disobedience and be repulsed. Turn across to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In this letter, the Apostle Paul has been urging Christians to do whatever it takes uh, to make sure that they remain in their trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, we're not to be distracted or disqualified by false teaching or disobedience. We're to firmly stick with our trust in Christ and in Christ alone and serve him as our Lord. And in chapter 10, Paul reminds us of the Old Testament Israelites and the awful mistakes that they made, just like we've been reading in Numbers. And he says that these things happened to Old Testament Israel so that we wouldn't make the same mistake. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless... God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. That's the sort of things we've been reading about in Numbers. Here comes the punchline, verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. Some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to, to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So we, as we have read Numbers chapter 14 this morning, have we heard the warning? Don't be like Old Testament Israel. Don't be stubborn. Don't be unbelieving. Don't be rebellious. Don't test the Lord and grumble against him, flagrantly disobeying him. And so if you put your trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Avoid it like the plague. If you're married, there's no such thing as a harmless flirt. If you're in an affair, sever it. But more along the lines of what we've been seeing in Numbers chapter 14, we're not to grumble against the Lord as we endure difficulty, as we make our way to the, to the new creation. 
Old Testament Israel, they had to walk through the desert before they got into the promised land. Jesus himself had to suffer and die before entering into glory. Us, as we make our way to the new creation, God's guaranteed for us trouble, heartache, persecution. But that doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is someone that we run down and grumble against. He's not like the boss that you have to obey, but then you make fun of him behind his back, not that we should do that. Anyway, where to be the people that don't grumble and don't and don't don't test the Lord. Because we're not to whinge or complain about what the Bible says. We're not to wish that God had said things differently. We're not to complain when hardships come and and resent God for the plans that he has for us, obviously. We're to keep our trust in him and to gladly serve him and to hold on to his promises of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're to continue to serve him. And anyway, if we really do understand the wisdom of God in making us his people, well then grumbling, it's not even on our radar, is it? We're not going to turn our backs on the sheer wisdom and brilliance and generosity of God in making us his people. Some things are just too good to pass up on. The personal history of some of the asylum seekers in Australia uh, is, is appalling. Uh, some of them have come from countries which are simply killing off uh, vast numbers of their people. They personally have lost their husbands or their wives, their children, their parents in the mindless slaughter. They themselves were under threat and somehow managed to escape and through various life-threatening circumstances they've risked everything and fled and made it here. They're tired, they're hungry, psychologically they're a complete wreck. They're haunted by nightmares filled with real-life pictures of loved ones being taken and killed. They're nervous and suspicious. Imagine then when they find themselves in an Australian customs office and a governmental official is telling them they're free to go. The government of this nation is saying they can stay. They now fall under our law and so they enjoy our protection. They can walk out the doors. The outside world that they've only ever seen through a barbed wire, that's now theirs to explore. A new life lies ahead. But the asylum seeker says no. They want to go back to their country. Even though it means slavery at best, torture and death more likely, they want to go back. That's not going to happen, is it? No, the world that's going to happen. This is just too good to pass up. Just like God's promises of eternal life in the true promised land. Too good to pass up. Why would we turn back to a life of sin and hopelessness and meaninglessness? The brilliance, the genius, the wisdom of God in judging our sin in Christ so that he can take us home. Our God is holy, he is honourable, he is good and glorious. He's too good to pass up. Grumbling in resentment, not even on our radar. Seeking the honour of our God. Humbly and gratefully walking according to his word. What else would we do? What else would we do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your wisdom that in the face of our sin you have been holy and judged us in Christ 
You've been faithful to your promises and we enjoy our forgiveness in Christ. And through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, your name has been declared to be holy. Thank you for your wisdom in having sinners like us as your people. And so, Father, please help us to all the more appreciate the goodness that you have showered upon us in your wisdom through Jesus, that we would never grumble, we'd never test you, but that we would humbly walk gratefully according to your word, always trusting in the Lord Jesus until you take us into your new creation. Father, thank you for the sure hope of eternal life. Please keep us trusting in Christ until the very end. Thank you for being so wise and so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.